All right. I want to start us. I want to start us off with just a definition of the gospel. Definition of the gospel from one of my new favorite favorite theologians. This definition goes like this. The gospel is the good news of the victory of Jesus Christ over the powers of darkness. The Savior, whose death was an atonement for sin, is also the Lord who disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in the cross, Colossians 2.15. His salvation deals not only with humanity's reconciliation to God, but also with a complete restructuring of life according to the model for the new humanity provided by God in Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel offers not only a religious experience, but also a new creation, a new lifestyle under the rule of God. That is the gospel that we're celebrating this morning. And, 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 and I want us to keep in mind that, that we're, we're doing this on a, on a day of, of dissonance. It's Resurrection Sunday. It's a day of, of profound joy, of, of celebration. But we also live in a racial capitalist society where police violence can claim the lives of men and women like Patrick Leoya in, in Grand Rapids. Where we see economic exploitation around us, violent enforcement of that exploitation, racist narratives, all of these things that kill that we're in a a world where a family can, can flee literal war in Congo and face violent death in a place of so-called peace. My question this morning, this, this Easter Sunday, is what does life mean in a culture of death? What does freedom look like in a world of constant exploitation? What does, what does a community of faith look like in what Latin American theologian Rene Padilla calls a consumer society, a society that gives priority to money over people and production over nature? Why does the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the actual, physical, historical, and real resurrection of Jesus Christ, why does that matter now? So, the warning before every sermon... As the Lord says to Job in Job 38.3, gird up your loins. <laughs> Let's get into the word. We're going to talk about Lazarus' resurrection this morning. So if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. John 11. We're going to, we're going to read portions of it. Uh, it's, it's 11, 1 to 44. It's kind of long, so we're going to, we're going to just read some pieces. Michelle. Okay. John 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Then to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Down to verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there was a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with the strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yes, we see that. Uh, brothers, there, there, are, there are two titles. Uh, two titles. I can never figure out a title for the service, so sometimes I just have a few of them. Uh, so the one in your bulletin is Resurrection Now, the Miracle that Killed Jesus. Um, the, other, the other title is uh, Jesus, the Sin Taker and Empire Breaker. So first, context. What's going on? We jumped, we jumped into the middle of things in John, in John 11. So if you haven't been here, over the course of the past six or seven months, we've been going through the Gospel of John. And so these first 12 chapters are what are called the Book of Signs, where you see these, these seven signs, seven major miracles that Jesus works, all of them revealing his power over creation. And, and, and they're called signs because they point to his identity. They point to the fact that he's the eternal son of God, the, the liberator of the oppressed, the creator of the world. But this last one, this seventh sign, is the most spectacular of them all. And it sets up the final sign, the final great work of the Son of God. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves quite yet. I want us to just walk through this text a little bit uh, and then see why, why this is actually a wonderful Easter text. In the beginning of this chapter, in the beginning of chapter 11, Mary and Martha, friends of Jesus, who you hear about later in the book, reach out to Jesus to tell him that their brother is sick. And Jesus responds very interestingly in verse 4. He says, this, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, a few, a few weeks ago, we, we looked at John 9, which is the sixth sign. And it's, it's when Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they, and they see a man who's been born blind. And they ask the question, what did this man or his parents do to make him born blind? And Jesus responds, no, no, no one did anything. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus shows out, and he does something that no one had ever done before. He, he gave sight to someone who didn't know what sight was. See, when, when Jesus says that God's son is about to be glorified through something, you got to be ready for a showdown. But, 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 when, but, when, but when he hears that Lazarus is sick, he doesn't, he doesn't show up immediately. He waits Two days. And then he tells his disciples, hey, let's, let's, go to, let's go to Bethany, back to the spot where they just tried to kill me a few days ago. Now, obviously, the, the, the disciples are wary, and Christ's response in verse 9 through 11 is this. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? 
Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going there to wake him up. That response is basically Jesus saying, Look, we've got a limited time to do this work, and y'all are going to want to do it while I'm alive. So let's roll, because Lazarus is asleep. And I got to go wake him up. Now, the disciples obviously don't really understand. They think he's like really asleep. And so Jesus clarifies in verse 14, look, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> I, I, love, I love Jesus just in the gospel of God. But, but he says, look, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. So the disciples gear up with Jesus to go back to where Jesus will probably die and his disciples with him. And when Jesus gets there, we have this great exchange. Martha, Martha in a display of faith and mourning. In verse 21, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she's right. Jesus basically said so. Also, it's often the case that the, that the women in these texts are the most trustworthy characters. And so it's often a good rule of thumb to listen to them when they show up. But, 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 but Jesus', Jesus response is wonderful. He says, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, this is verses 23 to 25, Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? In other words, you're saying he's going to be raised then. I'm telling you, he's going to be raised now. Martha, Martha responds with an affirmation of faith in verse 27. She says, yes, Lord, she told him. I, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And so Jesus goes out. He sees Mary and the others weeping, and he's deeply moved in spirit and troubled. I'm going to explain what that means a little bit. Uh, and he comes to the tomb, and Lazarus has been dead for four days. So he's not just dead. Like, he's dead, dead. Like, we're talking, like, there's custom that says that, like, the spirit hangs around for a few days. It, it's past that threshold. He's dead. He's good and dead. And so Jesus, but Jesus prays and he calls him out and the dead man comes out. See that, I want to take a closer look at this story because we don't, we, we come to know Jesus not just by saying like abstract things about him, but by looking at the things that he does. And so, and so, and so I want us to pay attention to three things in this chapter that Jesus loves his friends that he gets angry, and that he gives life. He brings life. And so where do we see Jesus' love in this passage? We see it first referenced in verse 3. It says, the sisters tell Jesus, the one you love is sick. And so there's an expectation here. You love him, so come heal him. And John tells us in verse 5, it's true. Jesus does love Martha and Mary and Lazarus, but he stays two more days. And this is a hard saying. So hear me when I say it. Sometimes... Jesus comes to save after we want him to. There's a great gospel song. Dottie Peoples. He's an on-time God. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. Oh, he's an on-time God. Yes, he is. Job said he may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. 
because he's an on time, you, you, you get the point. He's an on time, on time God. Song goes on to talk about Israel in, 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 in right, right up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh and Pharaoh coming at them and the Lord parting the sea. See, some, see the, 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 Jesus, Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but he's got a time in mind that may not match up with what they want. Add on to that, this piece of his love that he's going back to Bethany where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live, and that requires him to go back to Judea, back to where his life was just threatened. People just picked up stones to kill him. And here's the, and here's the great thing about this. Like, Jesus didn't have to go. We, we saw in John 4, he heals, he heals a, a royal official's son. He just tells the official, he's like, go, your son's been healed. He doesn't need to be there to heal him but he chooses to go. Sometimes love requires risk, perhaps even risk of your life. But ultimately, this sign itself is an act of love. Raising Lazarus from the dead is an act of Jesus' love for his friend. As a matter of fact, every single one of Jesus' signs, each of the seven, is not just a sign of Jesus' identity. It's not just a sign, it's not just a declaration of his son of godness. It's a declaration of his love. A declaration of his love for his people. A declaration of love for his creation. When he, when he turns water to wine... That's an act of love. It's not a wedding party. Like, there's no reason for him to do it besides extending a party. He, he heals the royal official's son from afar because of his love for this man and his household who all come to believe as a result of this miracle. He, he heals the paralytic at Bethesda because, because of his love for a man who was unable to move for 38 years. I want you all to see that Christ's miracles are not just raw acts of power. They're tender acts of love. If there's one thing in everything that Jesus does, there's a love and a care for his people. But his love also takes another form. The second theme is that Jesus gets angry. Angry? Really? I don't see that in the text. I know, and that's a shame. Uh, it's, it's there, though. Uh, it's, in, it's, in, it's in verse 33. Um, why, like, why would I get up here and say something that can't be found in Scripture? That doesn't make any sense. Um, when, verse, verse, verse 33, when, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The word that's translated deeply moved in spirit also means angry, bristling with indignation. It, 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 it doesn't just mean that he's just disturbed or perturbed or just maybe just a little bit off. No, like Jesus is angry. It, the question at root, what is the relationship between Jesus and death? Is death something that Jesus is just kind of powerlessly sad about? Or is this something that everything in who Jesus is is repulsed by? When, when, when he sees the weeping of Mary, when he sees the weeping of the Jews around her, when he sees unbelief, when he sees the refusal to recognize the kingdom that he brings with him, when he considers the brokenness of creation, when he considers the corruption of the world, the extent of our sin, the, the tendrils of evil that emerge from us and poison everything that we touch, when he sees that he weeps in loving fury. Two years ago, when George Floyd was killed, 
I preached a sermon on Psalm 94. If you don't know Psalm 94 is an, is an imprecatory psalm, and if you don't know what an imprecatory psalm is, it begins with these words. O Lord, the God who avenges, O God who avenges, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. That's how it begins. It ends with, the Lord will repay them for their sins and destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will destroy them. What this psalm is, and what these psalms are throughout, throughout the psalms, it's a cry of an oppressed people to a just God. A cry of an oppressed people to a God who has promised to liberate and to defend them. And I preach this, I preach this for our church because I wanted us to understand what it means to stand and to pray in solidarity with the marginalized and the oppressed. And there were voices outside of this church who said that I was too angry. Now, I'm not, a, I, 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 I'm not an angry person. I'm intense. Like, you could probably, it's a, I, I, I get that. I get that. But, like, but, like, but, but, but I'm, I'm really not an angry person. And, 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 and in this moment, what, what, what my response was is that some of the scriptures sound angry because there are some things that we ought to be angry about. There are some things that the Lord is angry about. The slaughter of the innocent, the abuse of the weak. These aren't just lamentable. These are infuriating. They cut against everything that we think that the world ought to be. And yet this is what the logic of a world that, that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, this is what it looks like. And so Jesus, in coming face to face with death, he weeps in its face. And he weeps not, not merely in sadness, but, but in a loving, protective, and righteous fury. And here's the thing. I think, we, I, think we have, I think we have some things that we can learn from liberation theologians. I think we need to be reminded that the freedom that God calls us to is a holistic freedom. He freed Israel from literal slavery, and then he gave them laws to care for one another's well-being because God cares for the whole person, body and soul. But the best the best black and Latin American liberation theologians remind us that, 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 that Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed is important, but it's even more important that he actually has the power and the will to free the oppressed from their oppression. Because we don't just need a Jesus who sympathizes. We don't just need a Jesus who cries. We need those things. That sympathy is important. Hebrews says that the scriptures are clear. This sympathy is important, but we need a Jesus who can actually bring life. See, and this is, and this is, and this is, this is point three, because this is the rest of our time, because this is, this, is, this is what Easter is about. Jesus brings life, and he doesn't just bring it. He is it. See, he told, he told Martha that he is the resurrection and the life, and that the one who believes in him will, that, that the one who believes in him has eternal life, and she thinks she knows what that means. No one in Jesus' earthly life really understands what Jesus says when he says it. And so, and so by the time, so, so Jesus gets to the tomb and he tells folks, take away the stone. And Martha's like, well, he, he's been dead for four days. Like, it's, it's not going to smell good. And Jesus is like, yeah, don't, don't worry about that. I, I got this. And so he prays to the Father. And he, he basically prays, Lord, thank you for what I'm about to do. Oh. It's just, it's, it's audacious. And then... And then he walks up to the tomb and, these, and, he, and he utters these powerful words in a loud voice. In verse the 43, he says, Lazarus, come out. 
And his voice pierces through the veil of death. And a man whose life was gone was revived. Some people have said, some people have said that if Jesus didn't specify Lazarus, if Jesus didn't specify Lazarus when he said, Lazarus, come out, everyone who was dead would have come up. That's the Jesus we're talking about. We're talking about a Jesus who, if he says something's going to happen, it's sure enough going to happen. And here's the thing. This is what gets him killed. This is why I call this the miracle that killed Jesus. Because right after this, the religious leaders are going to gather, and they're going to be like, we can't let him keep doing this stuff. See, because what what Jesus' signs do, they don't just reveal his love. They don't just reveal his person. They reveal that he is a threat. He is a threat to the kingdoms of this world. When he says that his kingdom isn't of this world, all he means is that it's not from here. It doesn't mean it doesn't affect this. It just means it's not from here. What he, he, is, he is a political and social threat, not just to the earthly empire, but to the infernal empire. That is, he's a threat not just, to the emp- not just to the empire of Rome and its minions and every single empire that would, rule, that would come to rule after it, including the American empire, but to the rule of the devil and of his minions. And in fact, here's the thing. If you're in Christ, you ought to be a threat to the empire as well. And here's what I'm saying. These miracles, these acts of love, because that's what each of these miracles are, are acts of holy rebellion. See, because the empire can't save a royal official son from death, but Jesus can. The empire has relegated the paralytic to a life of begging, but Jesus restores him to a life of abundance. See, the logic of empire says, hey, this person did something to make them blind. This person did something to make them poor. This person or this person's parents did something to make them deserve this chronic pain, to deserve this oppression, to deserve this, to, to deserve this sickness. And Jesus says, no, I'm here to break those cycles. I'm here to heal. And finally, the logic of empire says that life ends in death. But the Son of God says... I'm the arbiter of life. I'm the creator of it. I'm the sustainer of it. And so that's not true. And he calls out to Lazarus and he says, come out. He calls out to you in your abuse and he says, come out. He called out to you in your pain, in your addiction, in your sin, in your guilt, and your shame. And he said, come out. And the first victory against death was won. But that was just the first one because here's the thing. Empires don't like to be challenged. Archbishop Oscar Romero says that uh, Jesus died because he got in the way. The devil doesn't like to be resisted. And this is what sets off the rest of the Gospel of John, because that first half is called the Book of Signs. The second half is called the Book of Glory. Because after those signs, Jesus prepares for his death. After those signs, everybody's put on notice that, 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 that the king, that the king, the king of the coming kingdom is here. And so he marches toward his death. A death that is at once a laying down of his life, a lynching, and a shameful execution at the hands of the state. It's the seeming victory of sin. The seeming victory 
empire of corruption. That Jesus, an agent of overwhelming love and grace, the Lord of glory, he is shamed and exposed before the multitude. A powerless wretch gasping for life before finally taking his final breath. We hear the deep wretchedness of of 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. The one whose very being recoiled against the powers of sin and death was subjected to it, even if only for a moment. Because this Easter, this Resurrection Sunday, What you need to know, what needs to be driven deep into our souls, what needs to shape the way that we look at our God, ourselves, and our neighbors, is the fact that sin, the world, and the devil threw everything they could at our Savior. They threw torture, abandonment, sin, shame, accusation, all of these things. They did all of this to their uttermost. They marshaled all of their military powers on that one person who told them, you're not powerful enough for me. And they killed him. We did. By our sin, by our corruption, it kills the Son of God, the author of life. But in Matthew 28, after Jesus has been dead, the women come to the tomb. And they meet an angel there. And the angel turns to the women and says, Fear not, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is not here for he is risen as he said. I don't care what the empire said. I don't care what death said. I don't care what sin said. I don't care what the world said. He is risen, like he said. Jesus' response diffuses all of those things. His resurrection, this, this final sign that sums up all of the other ones. See, his resurrection wasn't like Lazarus's. Lazarus was raised to die again. Jesus got up never to be brought low again. Jesus Christ rose from the grave bodily, not, not just in our hearts, not just like metaphorically. No, he was dead, and now he's alive. And because he lives, the powers that we struggle against are powerless. Sin has been defanged by the holiness of the risen Savior. There's a great, you might ask, well, what about, what about the devil? There's a, there's a great, there's a great, there's a great, uh, great line in, um, in, Luther's, in, in, in Luther's song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. One little word has felled Satan. The word of God. The word that spoke into the word that spoke into nothingness and light didn't have a choice but to come forth. The word that spoke into Lazarus's grave and Lazarus didn't have a choice but to come forth. Sin is defeated. Satan is defeated. Death is defeated. So, 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 so here's the here, here's the here, here's the thing about death. Okay, so like so honeybees. 
When they, when they sting you, they, they die. Why do they die? Well, because their stingers are barbed. So, so when a honeybee stings you, its stinger gets stuck in you. And when the honeybee tries, this, this is a little bit gruesome, but that's all right, you'll be all right. Um, when, when a honeybee tries to fly away, the stinger gets stuck and it takes out the internal organs of the, of the bee with it when it tries to fly away. That's why honeybees die after one sting. And so, and so, when, so when death got a, hold of, got a hold of Jesus, death thought, oh, I got this, tries to fly away. And Jesus is like, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> death, this is, why, this, this is why that image that Paul uses in 1 in Corinthians 15 is so, is so powerful. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus has got it. Death is defeated. The world and its logic of empire, its logic of violence, its logic of consumerism, all of these things are defeated by the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, declared in power and inaugurated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus got up. Your sin is defeated. Our enemies are crippled. He rules now. See, I think this is something. I, 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 so we, 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 we talk about the already and the not yet a whole bunch. And we talk about this idea that the kingdom of God has broken through, but it's not fully consummated yet. And there's a, and there's, and there's a theologian, Rene Padilla, an, an, an Ecuadorian evangelical theologian, who has another thing to say to help us understand that. He says this, the not yet of futuristic eschatology is subordinate to the already of realized eschatology. What does that mean? It means that we spend a lot of time talking about all of the things that are not yet, but we don't focus enough on the fact that Jesus has won the victory. What does it mean for us to live a life where Jesus has won and he's ruling us now? See, Jesus has done the main big, like Jesus has done the big stuff. He got up from the dead. And so, and, so, and so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That means that he reigns right now. So, so my question to us is this. What does it mean for the Lord to reign right now, like in our midst? What if we lived lives that didn't make sense if Jesus didn't get up? Is that true of your life? Do you live a life that doesn't make sense if Jesus didn't get up? Here's what it means. It means that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can and are called to live the life that Jesus sets before you. It means that it means it's a life where we love our enemies. It's a life that's lived in repentance, turning from sin and toward the Lord. It's an, it's an authentic life in community with the body of Christ where we give according to our ability and receive according to our need. It's a, it's a life where we lend with no expectation of repayment. These are just things that Jesus says. It's a, it's a, it's a life where, where, our, where in our marriages we're seeking to outdo one another in Christ-likeness. It's a, it's a life where we're building a community where single folks have family. It's a life where we express a solidarity with 
with and a love for the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. It's a, it's a life where we seek to suffer with one another and rejoice with one another. It's a, it's a life where we seek to be beacons of a gospel of peace in a world at war. It's a life where we expect persecution, not because we're jerks, but because we live by a logic that's deeply counter to the logic of the world, that's deeply counter to the logic of empire, that's deeply counter to the logic of racism, that's counter to the logic of nationalism, that's counter to the logic of capitalism, that's counter to the logic of exploitation. And it's not just a new personal life. It's a new communal life. What the Son of God will do in the entire world, he said he's going to give us pieces of it in the church. Padilla says, says, says this, the church is called to incarnate the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. The gospel leaves it no other alternative. What does it mean for us to be a community that is actually empowered by the spirit? So you ask, how do I, how do I get access to that? Well, Paul says in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, this is not just a thing that you just kind of sit in your chair and do. This is a profound political act. See, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you're confessing that he's king. Now. Not Caesar, not whatever political part. I don't care. (laughs) Not the idols, the idols that you and I have. Jesus is king. And when you believe that he got up from the dead, what you're saying is that you believe that he proved it. And that the risen king reigns now. And so I want to say to you what the son of God and what the apostles say to you who recognize the Lord's reign. Let's live like it. Jesus says it in John eleven forty four. He told the crowd surrounding Lazarus after he came out, take off your grave clothes and go. Take off your grave clothes and go. Take off the shame, guilt, worry, and tentativeness of death. These clothes that cling to you, stinking of the impurity of being a corpse. Wake up in the morning affirming the life that Christ bought for you. If Christ reigns over you now, you can love your enemies. Take off your grave clothes and go. You can struggle for justice knowing that even if you die, you don't lose because Christ has already won. You can resist the the encroaching cause of racial capitalism and see people as more than just their value to a particular economic system and instead see them as the Lord does, as eternal beings worthy of love and care. Take off your grave clothes and go. You can be ready to sacrifice and give all that you have to the poor because you know that the gain of following Christ is far greater. Take off your grave clothes and go. You can be an agent of healing in a world of abuse. Take off your grave clothes and go. You can resist the ever-present nagging and loud voice of sexual sin. You can can look to the interests of others and not to your own. Take off your grave clothes and go. All these things that you encounter in the scriptures that seem hard. Yes, they are by the world's logic, but by the Spirit, by the power of God, the God that called out to Lazarus and he came out, the God that raised Jesus from the dead. You're saying this is too hard for us for a person indwelt by the very Spirit of God? Someone who's united to the Son of God? That doesn't make any sense. 
Christ is risen, dear sister. Christ is risen, dear brother. Take off your grave clothes and go. And go as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Let's pray.